true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. To talk about Judaism and to talk about Christianity is to talk about commandments. As I think we know, it all began in the Garden of Eden with one command. Of every tree in the garden you may eat, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall die. Then there were ten commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites to follow. And as the Scriptures were written, the first five books of the Bible came to be known as the Torah, or the books of law. And from these books, the Jewish religion decided its followers must keep 613 commandments. Now, if you're a Gentile, and that's us, I have really good news for you this morning. According to the Jews, you don't even have to convert to Judaism, and you only have to keep seven commandments. Now, I'm not exactly sure how God works all of that out, but there it is. That was supposed to be a little bit humorous, but (laughs) I can see the gears turning in the brains. Now, at the time of Jesus, it was common for the Jewish rabbis to ask which of the 613 commandments was the greatest. And when Jesus gave his answer, many would have substantially agreed with him, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But, but here's what's interesting. Why does love have to be commanded? For example, and I'll pick on myself, it seems awkward that I would have to be commanded to love my wife and my kids, Right? Moreover, and, and, and again, maybe I'm just talking about myself here, sometimes when I'm commanded to do something, there's just something inside of me that wells up and says, well, I'm not doing that just because you told me to. Then again, that's the point, and that's the problem. Earlier in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus had pointed out this problem when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, for it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of it. For what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. You see, God issued the commands, and yes, even the command to love, knowing that there was something lurking deep within the human heart. We call that evil. The propensity to disobey God, to pervert what God has made good and twist it into something that dishonors God and defiles us and others. Now, knowing this, we see that commanding us to love is both good and necessary. We have to know both what God requires of us, and sometimes we have to hear it said over and over again, directing us toward the good, even, and again, maybe I'm just speaking about myself, even when we don't feel like it, 
and maybe especially, maybe especially when we don't want to. This is why God told the ancient Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6, teach the commandments diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Bind them on your hand. Let them be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on your doorposts and on your gates. Like a general preparing his troops for battle, God knew we needed a regular regimen of training so that when the time comes to do battle, knowing what to do would be second nature to us. But for, that's easy for me to say, but for as much as God knew he would have to give us commands, and as much as he knew he would have to remind us of his commands, God also knew something else. He knew that a steady diet of commands would not fix our inclination toward evil that produces sin and death in us. For if we broke but one command, how could we then keep 10, let alone 613 or 7 as the case may be? So the story is told of a man who had accumulated great wealth. And he used some of his savings to buy for himself and for his family a second home, a place where he could steal away with his family and preserve his own peace of mind. Every winter, they would visit their second home. And every Christmas Eve, his wife would ask him to attend church with her and the children, Not being a religious man, instead he chose to sit by the fire while they went off to worship. One year, a snowstorm swept across the countryside. The man became worried that his wife and children might not be able to make it home that night. So he rose from his couch and he began to stare anxiously out the window and look down the road. He noticed that some birds were beginning to fly into an open barn door close by, seeking shelter from the howling wind and the driving snow that was quickly becoming a blizzard. Except for one bird, as birds can do. And this one bird continued to futilely pound itself against the man's large front window. This man began to turn his anxiety for his family toward compassion for this bird. Throwing on his overcoat, he ran onto the porch and he began to flail his arms and shoo away the bird, hoping that the bird might somehow understand as it continued to throw itself against the window. Then it occurred to him, if only I could become a bird, then I could relate to it and help it and show it the way to safety. And suddenly in that moment, the Lord prevailed upon him, and he understood why God became flesh. Now, maybe I just gave away a good Christmas sermon. Then again, it is always good for us to focus on the incarnation and consider why God became flesh and dwelt among us. 
For if we are going to have the chance of loving others and even rightly loving ourselves, then we first must be reconciled, restored to God, which is exactly what Jesus came to do. For as 1 John 4.19 teaches us, we love because he first loved us. And he showed us his love by giving himself to us and then for us. You see, here's the point. The context for any command that God would give to us is relationship. We command our children not to run into the street, not to touch the stove because we love them. And as we know better than them, we tell them sometimes over and over again what is right and what is wrong. But when we see them running, to touch, running toward the street or trying to touch the stove, we don't just stand there and continue to command them without doing anything. No, we go after them and we grab them. We intercede on their behalf. We wrap them into our arms and we bring them back to safety. This is what Jesus did for us. As the book of Hebrews teaches us, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of God. And what does he do there? The scripture says he ever lives to make intercession for us. It says that he is saving those who will come to the Father through him. But it even gets better. He also gives his Holy Spirit to all who will ask of him to comfort us, to counsel us, to guide us, to teach us, to correct us. Again, commands in the context of relationship. As our own Bishop N.T. Wright says in his commentary on this passage, I love this, that's when the commandments begin to come into their own. When they are seen not as orders to be obeyed in our own strength, but as invitations and promises into a new way of life, a way in which bit by bit hatred and pride can be left behind and love can become a reality. This is what it means to love the God who first loved us. And as another commentator says, we show our love for God by loving those whom God has made in his own image. I love this part. Not with a vague sentimentality, but with a total commitment that comes from devotion to God and then practical service of others, just as God devoted himself to us and gave himself to us and for us in Christ Jesus. Well, perhaps then, just perhaps, it's neither coincidental nor accidental that this passage comes to us as we're finishing our annual stewardship campaign and thinking about our future. You know this. All that we have and all that we are is given back to God, not primarily by command, because it all belongs to Him anyway, but rather as a loving response to the ways that he first loved us. How did he love us? Generously, faithfully, freely, and fully. 
And so he, he invites us to work cooperatively with him. And this is what we get to do. We get to participate in redeeming the world from sin and death. How? By reflecting his glory among ourselves, yes, for as it is said, charity begins at home, but not keeping it to ourselves. For as Jesus tells us, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but they place it on a stand so that it gives off light for the whole world to see. And is there any better way to put this on display than to build a place among a group of people who love Jesus so deeply and so fully that they want others to be able to come in from the trials and temptations of this world and the struggles and the sufferings of their own lives and find Him here speaking the sweet words of salvation to our souls? And is there any better evidence of this work than what we're about to do right now, a baptism, where the Manning family will soon come forward, and this is what they'll do, renew their vows to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil as we ask our Heavenly Father to give their Son, the Holy Spirit, to help Him participate as soon as possible in the divine life in Christ delivering his soul from the stain of sin and the sting of death, that he too, with us, might joyfully proclaim this good news to anyone and to everyone. For this too is a joyful command of God that comes from the love of God. So let us begin.